especially as CEO, you think everything is directed to you because you are such a smart and great person. And then when you're not the CEO anymore, you realize how much is connected to the role that you have and not to years of personality. Welcome to Innovational Correctness, a podcast all about innovation and transformation, hosted by David Luna, author, keynote speaker, and founder of Gamma Digital and Beyond. David and his guests discuss real-world practical advice on how to best harness the creativity of your employees and go from idea to product, giving you unique perspectives and insights into their success, all while separating hype from reality and replacing bullshit bingo with common sense. Let's jump right in to the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Innovational Correctness Podcast. My guest today is Hermann Arnold. Hermann Arnold sees himself as a pioneer of organizational innovation. He studied at the University of St. Gallen in Switzerland and was shaped by the understanding that companies are a productive social system. He's also the co-founder, chairman, and shareholder of Haufomantis, a software provider of talent empowerment and management. He has experimented with leadership elections, so democratic processes in companies, team recruiting, spiral careers, crowd strategizing, and other ways of innovating collaboration in organizations. But what I find particularly interesting about Hermann is the fact that he voluntarily stepped down as a CEO in 2013 and appointed his former intern as a CEO. Now, many would view this as a colossal failure when a CEO voluntarily steps down and admits that he isn't the right person to continue to the next growth stage of his or her company. Why this is the exact opposite of failure is something we discuss at length in this episode. So in this episode, we will answer some of the following questions. Why my guest voluntarily stepped down as a CEO in order to give his former intern his position, how his successor and customers reacted to this decision, how a manager or CEO recognizes the point where he or she is not the right person anymore to continue to lead the company, what it felt like coming back to the company and working under the new CEO, how he handled the conflict of his successor implementing his ideas with success, why more companies should think about limiting the terms of their CEOs, and finally, what he learned from letting employees vote for managers and why he believes this might not be the solution for the future. So let's go meet Hellman. Welcome to the podcast, Hamon. Well, thank you very much, David. It's a pleasure to be with you. Do you want to introduce yourself to the listeners? I'm the co-founder and executive chairman of Four Humanities. That is a company that I started 20 years ago, and we do software and consulting in the area of talent management and company rebuilding reorganization. And um, privately, I'm father, proud father of three little girls and currently in home office because we all probably are sitting at home nowadays. Yeah, we're all in quarantine now. Yeah, so something I found out about you during my research was that you helped children program back in the 90s. How did that come about so early? Because nowadays, that's a very hot topic. So you seem to be quite ahead of the curve with that idea. Yeah, that, <laughs> that was literally the case. We um, That was when I was studying and I had my 
year off for military service and during the military service I had a little bit too much time and I did first training for adults to get to know how to use the computer and then we thought wow we should also do that for kids because our school system was so outdated nobody was even thinking of using computers in the education area and then we said okay let's do a company and it was called Vision Kids and we were addressing kids from the age of um four five to twelve using um, computer for learning and programming and all the stuff but it was quite fun and it's true we were ahead of the curve but we had a lot of parents that were really interested in doing that and we had a lot of fun also with the kids and they learned in tremendously fast nowadays it's not necessary anymore because everyone is growing up with um, an ipad in the prom but back then it was not that used yes oh fascinating the first time I came across you as a, as a person was through a TED Talk on YouTube. And in 2013, you stepped down as the CEO of Haufe Umantis. So your successor could take over that would be better suited for the next growth of the company. And to add, you were also a shareholder. So in that regard, I have quite a few questions. And so let's start with uh, the first one. At what point in your career, did you make that decision? And was there like a catalyzing event that led to that decision to step down as a CEO? Yeah, well, um, I was conscious out of my studies. That was really something that stuck from what I've learned at the university was that most of the organizations go through different crises most of the time when leadership doesn't fit to the challenges ahead anymore. Yeah, they become something like bottlenecks, the grinder curve. I don't know if you've heard of that. And therefore, I was asking myself every year if I'm still the right person to lead the company the next year. And I always said I would will be as long CEO as long we don't find any better that we can afford. Now, obviously, there are a lot of people <laughs> that are better, but it's also a question of affordability. And yes, there was one defining moment or defining phase. We had a lot of to do, as always, you can imagine software startup. And we got two additional projects into our company. One was about a presentation, an important presentation for analysts. They are more or less making rankings with software is good and which not so good and on the other side we had a really big potential new customer to win and it was on top of all the things we had to do and um, then we set up two projects one was led by me concerning the analyst and the second was led by my then successor or later successor who was leading the afford with the customer and but we were also working each one in the other's team as a team member. And because I was quite conscious that all the people had too much to do, I tried to do the most myself. And the only thing that I could not do myself, I tried to delegate to people in the team to um, ask them for help in that. And the approach of my colleague was a totally different one. He made the first meeting, said how important it is. And then he put workload on top of each of the members. Um, and he was more or less just, let's say, coring it obviously also giving direction but coordinating it everyone was working quite a lot and when i then looked at the result and it's not about which project was more successful because my project with the analyst went quite well and we got a very good ranking with the analyst and we did not win the customer but that's not the point the point was what i realized is that the success we had with the analyst was perceived by everyone more or less as it was my success and they could help a little bit and the other project everyone was 
was proud of what they could achieve. There was a lot of energy and the implications for the organization were there much bigger because everyone was contributing and also taking insights out of this work. And that was the point when I realized, okay, I'm probably the right guy for the first phase of a startup when it's about a pioneer being in a jungle, not knowing where to go and just saying, okay, let's go this direction and just paving the way and others can follow. But the moment you have somehow the way somehow a little bit paved, then you need someone who can better orchestrate people to make these ways broader and to make them bigger and faster. That's obviously not my way of doing things. And that was when I realized now is the time that someone else should take over. And then I prepared this transition for one and a half year. I was talk starting to talk with him. I was also preparing him, preparing the environment, the company. And then there was the time when we had um, the handover and he became the CEO, yes. And, and how did your successor react when you approached him with your decision to step down and give him the CEO position? Well, first of all, he was quite astonished, but he's quite an humble person. And he said, well, he was he was flattered, obviously. And then he also said, okay, I want to think about it if I think it's the right step to do. But he started in our company as an intern. And I was really keen to get him on board because I've seen a lot of potential in him. And um, he was doing a big career in our organization, going in different departments, doing different jobs and always being quite successful in what he was doing. And therefore, I was really convinced he will be successful in his job. And therefore, he said, after this sleeping over it, he said, yes, he wants to do that. Yes. Oh, wow. He went from an intern to a CEO. Yeah, exactly. And to make the story more funny, um, more or less out of coincidence, I was then working one year under him as person in his team, because that's the literal meaning of stepping down. You know, it's not leaving the company, what you most of the time associate when you hear someone was stepping down. No, I was going back into the team that I was leading before, and he was then my boss, so to say. And therefore, Yes, he, he started as, as, as an intern in the company and then he ended up as the boss even of, my, of myself. Yes. Okay, wow. So you not only stepped down as a CEO, you gave him a former intern the CEO position. You came back and worked under the new CEO. And now the question that probably a lot of listeners have, were there any challenges with this new setting or how was that like working under a former intern? Well, for me, it was it was quite an interesting experience because obviously there's um, it's not very normal. But I started then looking into the world with different lenses, and I've seen it in so many instances where this exactly happened. For example, if you're looking for the most powerful man on earth, yeah, the American president, after eight years, Obama stepped down. He's not the president anymore, and now another one is president and he's normal citizen again. Or even in, in universities, there are some universities in certain regions where you have a term limit and that means you are a first uh, professor. Then you get to the dean and after you have reached your term limit, you go back and you're a professor again and someone else is the dean. That means in certain organizations, it's very common that you have such transitions, but in the classical corporate world, it seems impossible or imprehensible that to, to say there are people 
stepping back and then having others leading them that before they were leading. But for example, in our company, we, we, we called it spiral career. That were already people before me that went through this experience, not as a CEO, but as a team lead. And even after my example, there were even more people doing exactly the same. And I think it's a really good learning experience. Obviously, you learn a lot of things personally, especially as CEO, you, you think everything is directed to you because you are such a smart and great person. And then when you're not the CEO anymore, you realize how much is connected to the role that you have and not to years of personality. Um, I had one really strange experience when we had a meeting with a potential partner and they were both in talent development. That means they were more or less the, the experts in this field. And we were sitting there, me as CEO, he as the, still then the sales manager. And after probably one hour, I mentioned that he will be in the next months becoming the CEO. And from that moment on, I could have left the room. Yeah? Before, they were always looking at me, asking me. And once they mentioned that, they were only directing to him and talking to him and I even found, found it a little bit unpolite this behavior but it really was an eye-opener and that happened very often in subtle and less subtle ways yeah they look up to authority versus competence but it's the the point is it's easy to say they I think it's we yeah just imagine yeah we when we can shake the hands and talk a few words to the president of the United States it's really amazing even even if we don't like this person yeah. And if we if we have a problem in a restaurant, we want to talk to the chief to, to address it and so on. We are ranking people. We always look at something that Jitzke Kramer, that's a corporate anthropologist, said that opened my eyes. We as humans, we are ranking people. We always look who is the highest ranked person in the room. And then we address our efforts and tension towards them. Now, that's somehow really normal. And every, even the most modern or advanced people do the same. I had another experience. I was There was a movie about our company called, in German, it's called Augenhöhe. In English, you would probably translate it on ice level. Yeah, that means it was about companies that lead on ice level, where it's not that a strong hierarchy. And then there was the premiere of this movie in Zurich. And there were probably 200 people, all of that, that really think that is the way how it should work in the future. And for the pre-program of this premiere, my successor and I were invited to have a short interview on the stage. And then very short time, um, my, call, my successor could not come and I came alone on the stage. And I thought, okay, I make a little joke and said, well, I'm really sorry that the real CEO cannot come. It's just me, the former CEO. And I had assumed that some people would at least laugh or smile. But I looked in the faces and it was more, okay, it's not that bad. Yeah. And then I realized even they felt somehow disappointed that the CEO is not here. Those guys yeah, that preach and um, those guys, the hierarchy should stop. But nevertheless, they wanted to see the CEO. There should have been any employee of our company being there on stage and they should have appreciated it as much as seeing the CEO. But it was not the case. That means we are really people that are we are ranking people and it's so in our nature that we don't get it out yeah yeah i guess we could say we were status seeking animals yeah 
And I personally always have a difficulty accepting authority if that authority is not competent in my eyes. However, I don't define it just because someone is president, just because someone is CEO. I mean, as a CEO, you can run a company into the ground as well. But uh, yeah, absolutely agree that most people look at the, the business card and, oh, he's the CEO. Now I have to be really nice to him and, and listen to everything he says. But most of us people say, yeah, we are not like the others. And if we are really honest to ourselves, that is not true. If we would be in the room with Donald Trump, even if we don't think he's a competent president and probably even worse things about him, yeah, we would feel quite tense. And if he would address us and correct us, we would more or less be shaking, whatever. Yeah, It means that is somehow so deeply ingrained in our things. Obviously, when, when these persons are far away yeah, and we don't stay in direct contact with them, then we then it's easy for us to talk about that. But I have seen really powerful men being like little kids around um, more powerful people. That means it's really, there are very few people that really can not be affected by power. But it's, a, it's another story, yeah. Yeah, I can definitely empathize with people that find that very seducing or find authority or power generally seducing. So I want to come back to where you were working under the new CEO. Were there times where you thought things like, why the hell did he make that decision? Or I would have done it much differently. Or what the hell, that was my idea. Because I know I would have struggled with the whole thought process of somebody else making or taking my ideas and running with it? Well, um, the, the, the interesting point, that was obviously a journey. And first of all, he was doing things that I thought probably won't go well. And I was really... Um, it was really hard for me not to jump into or to try to change course. And the only thing that helped me was that I understood if he wants and should do things better than me, then he has to do it differently than I would have done it. And therefore, I could somehow endure such things when he did things totally differently than I would have done. And we had the luck that he is someone who really openly and actively searches feedback and advice. And yes, I was giving him sometimes advices and i beginning thought the most difficult thing is if you give an advice and the person doesn't follow this advice yeah? that is obviously that it, you think it's difficult um, but the more difficult thing where what you were mentioning now is that i gave a feedback and advice and then he was implementing it and was successful with it yeah? and it's somehow like if you get a t-shirt a gift from someone and you're carrying it around and you get compliments for this t-shirt yeah most of the time you would will not always say hey thank you very much but listen this person gave it to me and that is something that obviously scratches on your ego when you see someone else succeeding with ideas that you have but what helped me over this was the realization that if you're a leader you get advice from so many people and everyone knows what you should do and how you should do it and that means one of the key tasks and the key achievements of a good leader is to decide which advice to follow and which advice not to follow. And that means when a leader follows an advice that she got, it means it's her success if it's successful. The same thing that she cannot say, well, um, I did that, but it was the advice of someone. Yeah, you can also not blame someone else when you're doing certain things that are not successful. And if you, if you look at that in this way, then you can and live with it and say, okay, I provide my advice. But at the end, it's the decision of the person that leads if she wants to follow or not. 
True, you have to take responsibility for the decisions that you make based on the advice you you get, uh, unless you have some big uh, name consultants that you can uh, blame them for it. But I want to go back again when you step down as a CEO, were the reactions to this decision generally more negative or more positive from your customers and suppliers? You mentioned one of them being basically invisible. Well, I think on the customer and supplier side, we tried to somehow manage it a little bit in a good direction that I took also over the formal role of a chairman. And back then it was just a formal role that at least to the, towards the outside, there was a sign of continuity till they got over it and have seen that it works or even works better. Um, I had some quite interesting discussions first with my board. My then chairman um, was asking me, yeah, Herman, I understand, but don't you want to get a professional CEO and learn what it means to run a bigger organization? And also for my family, and my family are entrepreneurs too. And they said, well, I don't understand you. Yeah, you, you built up this company, you invested so much energy, time, and even money. And now you're putting the fate of this company into someone else's hands. And you still are the major shareholder of the company. How how can you do that? Yeah, that means there was also quite a misunderstanding or astonishment about this decision. Yeah. Most of the time, we think when someone steps down, something must have occurred or they were forced to step down, even though we voluntarily step down, people still assume, well, that was probably the agreement. He'll step down voluntarily because he screwed up. So we'll let him save face. So my question that I have is... As a manager, how do you recognize when you're not the right person to continue the next growth stage of a company? So, yeah, sure, what some managers might be good at building companies from scratch, and thus you might not be the right fit or a very very poor at scaling and managing large organization, but that's easier said than done. So, how do you recognize when the time has come, so to speak? Well, I think that's one of the most difficult decisions. It's always when to persevere or when to pivot, yeah, to put it that way. And um, for me, probably the most important thing is, and I think everyone should do that, every leader, but everyone, yeah, you should once a year sit down. And this is this more or less stupid custom of making New Year's um, promises to yourself and to others. But it has something. If you think through what is it what you want to achieve the next year and what is it where you're good at and what is it where you're not so good at and what gives you energy and what costs you energy. And um, if, you, if you're honest to yourself, yeah, probably most of the time you will either see it yourself or you will have signals within your organization, your team or your private environment. Most of the time, we see now a lot of managers that are really close to burnout. Uh, we, in Switzerland, we even had some cases of suicide of CEOs, yeah, very successful CEOs. Oh, wow. And um, that is quite, uh, if you're honest to yourself and you listen to, to your own inner voice and also to your environment, you probably will get the sign. Yeah? And obviously, it's also somehow difficult because you're in a golden cage. Yeah, you have some power, you have prestige, you have also salary, you have budget, you can do things, you can influence things. That gets really, really difficult. And therefore, most of the time, people are, even if you're over this point where you should have stepped 
down already, you start really to suffer. And that is something that probably some people are in, but then it's so difficult for them to get out of this golden cage because what you have to see is, I realized that when I was talking to someone who was responsible for the net of subsidiaries uh, of a big bank. Yeah, That means they have a lot of little subsidiaries in every village and they have to close every year a certain amount. And he told me there is no way that one of those captains of the subsidiary in the village X1 says by himself, I want to um, close my subsidiary because you you only lose. Yeah, you are in this you're in this village. You're the big zampano. Yeah, whenever there's a festivity, they call you, they invite you. You're the guest of honor. You have the red carpet. You make the decisions who gets a loan and who not. That means you're really powerful, and it's really a good job to have. And even if you find another job in the in this bank that is the same pay level and has a really good title. You nevertheless lose a lot of things. Why the hell should you voluntarily go this way? There is almost no reason. And that's why so many people are stuck into this golden cage and they only leave it when it's more or less too late. Yeah? And then they have to leave the company or they get fired. Yeah? And then most of the time, if you change then the company, then somehow it gets easier to, to, to go there. And the only, the only way that I have seen um, where people voluntarily quit is when they start, when they say, now I start my own company because obviously then they will earn less in the first instant. They will have less power in the first instant. They even have a higher risk, everything. But somehow the, the image of an entrepreneur is okay. It's good. And you have at least the illusion and a little chance to, in the end, come up better than you were before, even financially, even from your status and your power. And that is something that we are actively thinking through and developing models. Could you do something like that within an organization? That, for example, if you are such a manager and you, you would be at the time that it would make sense to step down, but there is no rational reason behind that you will never go this step. But if you see there's a path that could be even successful, then probably for you it's easier to recognize for yourself and to be honest to yourself because you say, okay, there's an alternative to it. And that alternative would be internal entrepreneurship. That means you start your own startup, your own mission. You do something entrepreneurial. Even if there's a salary decrease and even there's a decrease in power and prestige, you can say, I'm now an entrepreneur. And that should help people to be honest enough to see see the signs when they should step down. That was going to be my next question is how do we create an incentive structure, not just monetarily, but how do we create an incentive structure within a company to make it much easier and socially accepted to step down from any position, not just the, the, the pay cut, but also the reputation? I said that this internal startup is something I put a lot of hope in. And there are other models that I have seen that work quite well. For example, term limits work. Yeah, the most powerful person on earth steps down and is okay with it. Yeah, I hope even with the that we now have in the White House will do the same. Yeah, We see other people that try to trick the system, but at least that worked for several hundred years. That means if you 
you have a social contract that this is just for a certain period of time, then it works. And that's something that you probably see even in every voluntary organization. Yeah? That means you, you join a sports club or a student fraternity or whatever. And first you, you're a normal member and then they ask, hey, couldn't you be the finance guy or even the president? And you take home and say, yes, of course, I'm happy to do that. And after a certain period of time, you say, okay, now it's time to hand over this, the responsibility and someone else takes over and you go back and become a normal member again. And there it's totally normal. Yeah, that means we have to find models how we can make it more common in companies. And obviously, always the first people in an organization, they have to be the pioneers and they have to pave the way, although it's not very common. But the moment there are some successful cases and you see that they have a higher quality of life, they're more happy, they are striving and thriving now in what they're doing, then um, it becomes easier for others to follow. But if we follow your train of thought, wouldn't that mean we have to let our employees vote for management as well if we restrict the CEO position to a term limit? Well, not necessarily. We have we have done an experiment. We were voting for our um, leaders for several years and we found out it's probably not the model for the future. We had great successes, but with time, with a growing organization, with different locations, different cultures, more people, we tended to develop the habits that we have in our big society democracies. Now, on one side, the leaders think they cannot lead um, strongly with measures that are unpopular because you don't get voted. That means we somehow hinder our leaders to really lead. And on the other side, I think that could be something that you could handle in an organization with the right culture. But on the other side, what you what we also all we all are developing is a popcorn culture. In a normal company, if you have a problem with your superior, you have to solve that sort it out. Yeah, you cannot just say, okay, I wait till it changes because most of the time it won't in a in a good period of time and if you have on the other side if you have elections then you just sit down take out your popcorn and wait till this guy is voted out and that was something that we have experienced in our company and therefore we went away from elections towards a better system where we can distribute power more into the organization because elections is just voting for the king and probably also being able to vote out the king that's important but they're probably other ways how we as normal employees or normal citizens can take over responsibility and not always waiting for those on top to do things. And it's so easier, for example, when we're talking about the refugee crisis, it's so much easier to, to ask um, those in power, they have to solve the problem instead of saying, okay, I open the doors and I take in two refugees. And if everyone would do that, we had problem solved. That is something with, with these elected leaders, we also give up some responsibility and I don't know if this is the right way to go forward within an organization. We are now more thinking of distributing the power that everyone who wants to take a decision and to execute on a decision can do that, provided he talks to experts and all meaningfully affected people. And that doesn't mean that they have followed. We learned it from Frédéric Laloux, the author of Reinventing Organizations. That's the advice process that he has seen in all the companies. And I was then reflecting on it and it was exactly 
exactly what we have done as a company before we were um, starting with these elections. Whenever I had an important decision, I was seeking the advice and we even did some votes on important decisions. And that was how I was running the company. And there were also other people taking over responsibility and bringing things forward without always asking me that I'm then the right person that makes the decision. And just to say a few examples, we were always hiring people as a team decision and not as the leader decides. Even the when we did then more or less integrate our company into the bigger half group, that was a decision that we took as as a team. That means all of them then a little bit more than 100 employees had one vote. I was the founding CEO. I was the major shareholder. And I had one vote as the intern that just joined three months before. And that's how we did um, decisions before. And that's how we are going now towards. And then you have just the possibility that everyone can take over leadership and others can more naturally also give up leadership. Yeah, That means they see others are keen to do things, they are good in doing things, then you don't lose your status and your power immediately, but other people can take over certain parts. And in the long run, I see, and we see it already happening since several dozens of years, that middle management gets flattened out. They have they have less numbers. Yeah? And those that are still in middle management have a lot of pressure. And that's not healthy at all. That means what I see is these disruptions that we see everywhere in the marketplace where we have less bookstores, less bank account people, like banking people on the counters. That's the same happening within organizations. Yeah, We have less travel agencies outside and the travel agencies of companies are middle management and staff. And therefore, this is a profession that will get disrupted and therefore you will not get just a premium because you are a leader. And when we are reaching this state uh, that we have less premium because you're a leader, then it probably becomes easier because it's then just one task as a lot of other tasks. And sometimes you take it over, sometimes someone else takes it over. And by that, everyone is a leader. And it's also something that I somehow describe in the book that I have written after um, stepping down and thinking through that. It's called Wir sind Chef. It's unfortunately only in German, yet it's in English you would translate we are boss. Uh, that means everyone should be a leader in his or her respective way, and then it becomes easier. But it's a long way to go. Until then, it's not that easy. So you said quite a few things that I found fascinating. One was you let your employees vote for the managers, then realized, hey, wait a minute, maybe this concept isn't the right thing for us, or it's not working out, but you did have the courage to try it out. And then I see a lot of parallels to politics. Now, we Germans in particular, we... I think we tend to put too much power or responsibility in politics. So Bundeschancellor or the president or whatever has to solve the problem. You know, so we can complain and say, well, they're supposed to solve it. We voted for them, so they need to solve it instead of solving the problems ourselves. And maybe because Germans are averse to responsibility, um, because we can see this with Corona now, a lot of people are doing things voluntarily without the government mandating anything. Well, except maybe the quarantine thing. But here you see, we are actually capable as citizens to take on responsibilities. But yet Germans tend to be, well, they push off responsibility to the government. So I see a lot of parallels here. 
What I also found funny is the EU doesn't trust its citizens with such power of the referendum. Then why should companies trust their employees to vote for their managers or their managers that are also shareholders? But yet here you were humble enough to say, I as a major shareholder, I as a CEO or former CEO shouldn't have more more votes than the ordinary employee. And I think that's what most companies are intrigued with this concept of letting the employees vote for the managers but are afraid to do yet here you were still humble enough to say my vote shouldn't count more than the ordinary citizen or employee and probably there's a reason why we didn't find that many followers um, doing leadership elections probably they're right yeah and we see ourselves as a pioneer and it, it compared often to the time when people tried they said now we should be able to fly Yeah, obviously, there were always some idiots jumping from cliffs with jump feathers. But then when the time was right, there were, and right, yeah, there were a lot of pioneers all over the world trying to fly. And when you, you see some videos on the internet, um, how this looked like, and there were really funny ideas. And obviously, some big machines that were having wings that were moving like birds. And obviously, all those failed. But you need all these experiences to see this doesn't work and other things work. And that's something that we have seen. And I would now say, say leadership elections is an interesting experiment, but probably not the way going forward for the majority of companies. And therefore, we have to find other ways to get to the point. And when you're looking at societies, there are also quite, there are quite innovations in democracy. Yeah, I'm, I co-founded an initiative called Democracy 21, where we try to find these innovators and connect those innovators um, and when you look there, there, there are a lot of things like citizens' assemblies, yeah, where people randomly get brought together for an assembly to, to discuss a certain problem and to propose a solution, and then either hand it over to a referendum or giving it to, to the government as a proposal what they would do. And the tremendous success is, for example, in Australia and also in other municipalities also. And one of the most quoted examples is um, Ireland, where they had a citizens' assembly on different questions that were obviously in a, in a Catholic country quite difficult, for example, same-sex marriage and all this stuff. And then the citizens' assembly came to the solution and said, well, we should, we should make a vote on same-sex marriage. Nobody would have dared it. And then Ireland was one of the first countries to introduce them yeah, um, in, 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 in Europe. And that means there are there is a lot of going on, also innovative things in how we organize our society and democracy, because it is stupid to assume that everything changes in the moment, everything is, gets disrupted. But politics and the way how we organize societies and how we organize companies will more or less stay the same as it was in the, in the past. That's not going to happen. And there will be a lot of disruption. And we see it in society in the moment more. The, for me, disruption is the creative destruction of Schumpeter. In the moment, we see more destruction, not that much creativity on the highest levels of society. But in a lot of municipalities, a lot of cities, there's things going on that really give me hope that the future of democracy will look differently and much better. And the same is happening in, in organizations. And there are those organizations that are always asked and mentioned and interviewed like Hof Humanities and a lot of others. But there are hundreds of thousands of leaders in big organizations that just do the right thing within their own area. Yeah, that means they 
drive innovation, how they work together from small, small scrum teams, what is now more or less commonplace, to much bigger departments where leaders say, well, I run it differently. And especially when you're looking at family companies that are very successful on the backbone of Germany in a lot of things. If you look at this all patrons where you would say, well, they're the big datas as they are in the in the rule book, they are not. They're listening to people. They they they, they mention it a little bit differently. Yeah? They're saying, well, hey, I have hired a lot of experts. They should know what to do. I'm just the boss. Yeah. But when you look at that, they say, okay, I distribute my power to those experts and I listen to them and I more or less follow what they say. That means there are already a lot of different ways how leadership is distributed and how these big, powerful guys cede some of their power to others. And that is, out of my perspective, the future. And we will come to that. And it will be less formal as we have it now. That means there will be less people that have to step down formally to make this new system happen. It will be more organic. You take over responsibility and the next time someone else takes over. Yeah, absolutely agree. Just to add to, to some of your, your comments, there was also Edison that famously said, uh, I didn't fail 500 times, I just came 500 times closer to success. And I think those people that try things out that are very early on as pioneers don't get enough credit because they say, see, I told you, Herman, it doesn't work. See, voting doesn't work. I told you. I knew it from the beginning. See, And then they tried again and again, and then someone finds a solution. And then the one person where it works, they get all the credit, which I find it's sometimes frustrating. But you need those people as pioneers to pave the way for success later on. And what you also mentioned is, I think the organization structure from 100 years ago or even 120 years ago from Taylor has not fundamentally changed. People like to believe, oh, a lot has changed, and that is true to a certain extent. But if you look at the functional hierarchy, that hasn't changed. So you have a lot of people now or very dynamic markets, and people at the top have the authority, but they don't have the information. And as David Marquette, he was a famous uh, nuclear uh, submarine captain, and he took over uh, one of the worst performing U.S. submarine divisions and transformed them into one of the best. And one of his slogans was, don't push information to authority, push authority down to information. So essentially, what the EU propagates or says they're doing is the subsidiary principle. So those people who have the information that are closest to the customer, they should be able to make the decisions. Because by the time you give all that information, channel it up, to the CEO, then they have their roundtables or whatever. Obviously, I'm exaggerating. And then push that down, the decision, it's it's already too late. So I, I think a lot has to has to change there as well. And a lot of our people are saying, well, digitalization is the way forward. And I think that's not going to work. You can digitalize all you want if you're not changing the fundamental leadership principles and organization structure to fit the new context you're in. That's not going to work. Yeah. And they always look at me. I'm like, well, hmm, yeah, well, digitalization. I'm like, that's not, that's only very small part of the, the answer, I think. I mean, what is your view on the organization itself? Do you think the structures that we have today, are they sufficient for the future? Well, I think that's interesting what you mentioned because um, technology is always a tool without any meaning by itself. And we have learned it the hard way. We first saw the internet will democratize everything. And then we see now it's also used in a total different way. And uh, the same is true towards organization. 
experience. And technology can be used to totally free and empower citizens and employees. And we see other areas. And now with Corona, we see a big push forwards in this direction that technology can be used to track people, to control people, to, to even enforce a strict hierarchy and a stricter power over over people. And that means it's not clear that just with technology, everything will go in the right direction. And it's not even clear what is the right direction because there are a lot of really smart people that say, well, look at this mess in, in, in the Western democracies. And on the other side, look how good China is coping with their economic growth. And now even with the coronavirus, the Asian countries are much better doing that, but they just push it through. And in, 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 in the Western hemisphere, we have a lot of more chaos and not sync organizations. That means they, their history repeats itself. That was also during the industrialization. I have seen a chart comparing the economic performance of um, US, Germany, France, UK, and some other Western countries, and the UDSSR, Rus Russia. Oh, sorry, English is different abbreviations. Um, then Russia, and they were in this really mess of industrialization where you didn't know how to do that and you had to bring the farmers into the factories. They were so much more successful. We had declines in, in Western Europe by 20 to 60 percent and that was more or less also one of the reasons why we then had World War II. And on the other side in Russia, they were booming like crazy and we, we were a lot of time fearful in the Western world because they brought the first living being into the orbit they were more successful in a lot of dimensions and it was not clear that this central planning with these experts will finally collapse because of corruption and a lot of other things and misdecisions but back then it was quite a successful model and we were all afraid and now history reads itself with other um, contexts but with china and singapore and all these things and a lot of Very smart people say that's the better model. It's meritocracy. It's not this messy thing of democracy where everyone gets bribed. Could be. I'm I'm fighting for the other side and hope that we will find better ways how we deal with these changes. But obviously, and that's answering your question, the way how we organize it today will not be successful in the future. There, I'm quite sure. And funnily enough, a lot of innovations always come from the military. Yeah, we see it in a lot of terms like recruiting, assessment, um, assignment. It's all military terms, promotion. And um, I don't know if you're aware of the book Team of Teams from McChrystal. It's a general who was responsible for the special forces in Iraq. Yeah, I've heard of him, but I haven't read his book personally really, really enlightening. And the special forces were founded after the disaster with the liberation of the hostages in Iran. Yeah, <laughs> The most powerful military, they were coming in and they already had some um, helicopters crashing and this, the different divisions, the Marines and the Air Force and the infantry didn't work together Yeah, because total silence. And it was really a big, big defeat of US that they could not free these few hostages out of Tehran. And then they implemented a task force, a special unit where they put the best people of all the divisions together and they were tremendously successful for years, for decades. Yeah? They were doing special operations around the world always in, out, doing the stuff, even till now, killing Obama and so on. Quite successful. But in Iraq, 
Osama, right? Not Obama. You get the news here. <laughs> uh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Obama did it. Yeah, Osama was killed. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. No worries. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. And yeah, you're right. And and then you, you see there was then this big um, classic war in Iraq, and then US they said, well, we are now more or less done. There are just a few few nests there that we have to get out, and that's not the right thing for our big military. Come in as a special force and just do it. It's done in a few months. And then this this guy was taking over when it wasn't done within a few months. And he, what he was saying was quite literally. He said I was in a in a commando central, having all the technology the world can buy and even better having the best educated people with the best infrastructure with everything best of best having resources without end and then he said after a certain period of time he realized they were losing against people that could not read and write and they were doing their war with improvised explosive device yeah and that was when he realized that's not the way how we can go forward and then he was also pushing authority downwards and not pushing information upwards and he um, changed dramatically how they were approaching things and that's also the new doctrine that means militaries that were facing an enemy that was more an HR network and not just a classic army they had already to adapt and they have totally adapted to new realities and now we always thinking of the military as one example of the past how you don't want to run an organization I agree with compared with most of the militaries but when you're nowadays looking at the militaries that are fighting HR networks that is unfortunately Unfortunately, again, a source that we have to look at as organizations of how you can organize for the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned a very, very important point, which I always try to hammer home with CEOs when I'm doing a keynote or workshop is, well, for one, obviously, the America has relied heavily on compartmentalization. So they have the secrecy and these silos, and a lot of companies have these silos, and they incentivize based on silos, but then they're like, oh, we need to be agile, we need to have these cross-functional teams. If you're not changing the incentive structure to begin with, then why should I as an employee work with that other department? Because my loyalty is to my people, to my department. Obviously, I'm exaggerating, but if you don't change the incentive structure and break up those silos, it won't work. And then the second point, which you mentioned is extremely important, is the over reliance on technology, believing that it will solve all problems. And the example I always say is, okay, now you have digital cameras or the iPhone. Um, now everyone can shoot 4K video. Now, what does that mean? We have democratization of technology. That's fine and good, but you have the next problem. Now everyone can shoot. Now what happens to the quality? Now you're flooded with 4K quality. What becomes more important now? To tell a story. So it's the fundamental principles that become much more important than the technology. So take someone that has been shooting analog. He'll do a much better job if you give him an iPhone or even his old camera. He'll do much better video than the people or the millennials with this newest technology. And I think that's the tendency we uh, I always see with the, the, the Mittelstand, so the, the SMEs in, in Germany, the over-reliance on technology, believing it will solve all problems. And now with the coronavirus, we see this even more, I believe, is, oh, we just have to use this WebEx and and, and uh, Zoom and this will all work. And then they realize, wait a minute, we, we I have to lead very differently and, and we have to coordinate and, wow, oh, we haven't done this before. Uh, what does that mean for our organization? And then they come up to these problems where I think your approach is, is the right one. We have to look elsewhere, other industries or the military that maybe have already solved this problem? Well, I don't think that they have solved it already, but they are ahead of most organizations. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I might not have solved it, but at least at least they're they're addressing the problem. So we talked a lot about employees being able to vote for their managers. And two things came up. One, Switzerland, and the other was the dentist. And I'll connect these. So in Switzerland, they seem to have a better system where they're allowed to vote on a lot of things where this tends to take longer, but you have less protests and demonstrations. So this seems at least a better system. And on the other hand side, this also seems to create higher pain tolerance, because if I voted for someone, then it's very un unlikely that I'll say, oops, I voted for the wrong guy. I made a mistake. Similar to when you go to the dentist, he'll ask you during my drilling, if at any point you feel any pain, just raise your hand. And there's a scientific reason for that. As everyone knows, the pain tolerance goes up if you feel in control and can stop the pain at any point. But in companies, this would also or could be potentially detrimental in that maybe employees that voted for a manager and that manager now does a bad job. They have a higher pain tolerance to stop this bad or say even corrupt behavior. What, what's your view on that? Well, I think these um, elections are double-sided sword, as I already mentioned, that on one side, obviously, if you have good voting results, it gives you a boost in confidence, some um, help to, to do your work and to lead because you have the backing of the people, obviously. But on the other side, there was also something that Yitzke Kramer the myth of democracy that means that those who lose an election accept this result yeah somehow it, we do yes but especially nowadays we see that there is much more problematic situations arising especially when votes are very narrow yeah, we see it in the US and in all other countries where we have a polarization of the society along certain lines and that if it's just 48 to 52 there's no reason why the 48 minor minority should go along with this and they have issues the whole period and then probably turns and then it's the other side. Therefore, I would say generally I agree that means the more you, you feel in control, the better you can handle situations, also like stress and others. But I would say it helps when results are good, but the moment if results are narrow, it becomes probably more an issue than a help in this situation. And therefore, I see there a lot of really critical consequences and as I said, in, in our company, we have now solved it and they're going on a different way where we see, well, we don't want to elect structural leaders anymore. We want everyone to be able to be a leader in a certain area via this advice process. And perhaps we could find similar so solutions within society as well. And you mentioned Switzerland. Yes. And I think exactly Switzerland is somehow a little bit used to this kind because you have a government, but this government is all the parties that are in parliament also are part of the government and they understand their duty more to follow the greater benefit of the whole society and not to execute on their programs of their parties. That's quite interesting because in Switzerland, everyone can be a leader. You just start an initiative. And if this initiative is accepted, then it becomes law. And then the government has to follow and execute on the law that you created. And even if you're not successful, sometimes you force the government to go a little bit along in your direction. That means you come with a probably quite extreme proposal and then the government feels well that 
seems to have some backing in the population. And then they make a counter proposal that is not so extreme as your initiative, but it still moves the needle in the right direction. And therefore, in Switzerland, with this initiative and referendum, you give every citizen theoretically the possibility to define the course of the country even when you're not an elected official um, politician. And that's something that I find is really strong. And that's something that we try to replicate in our company, now even more consequential than just saying we elect leaders every year. But obviously, it's a long way to develop this culture that it is really lived. But we are on a good track. And therefore, I'm quite confident that this could be a better solution where we will find also more companies that follow these ideas than um, with leadership elections, where we have to be honest, we were just an exotic outlier in the corporate world. That's very interesting. I think you could also vote for a dictator or you could vote for someone in a democracy. So those are two different things, but it's the same principle. You get to vote, but that doesn't automatically mean, as you mentioned, that it has a, the intended outcome. Yeah, the interesting point is if, if you stick to certain basic rules. I've heard that from a democracy theorist who said, well, the most important function of democracy is not to vote in certain politicians, but is the function to vote out certain politicians. That means as long as you have the possibility, the moment someone loses the ground on the floor or becomes too extreme or whatever, loses the backing of the population, that you can vote out this leader, then everything is fine. Obviously, it becomes difficult when you start um, dominating the media, you start suppressing free speech, you start creating loyalties by providing money or influence to certain groups, then it becomes um, difficult. And then it goes in a trajectory where at the end, some people end up as dictators. Because the interesting point when you look at it, there were, I, I have had once, uh, I did a little research of the most brutal dictators of this world and what their history was. Most of the time, there were freedom fighters for the little man. Yeah? If it's if it's uh, Mao Zedong or if it was Derek Mayer and so on. A lot, a lot of people and Gaddafi. Yeah? If you look at the, at the green books of Gaddafi, that is a poster child for direct democracy and participation of citizens. But with time, this somehow deviated. Yeah? Also Castro said he, he, fought, he fought for the people and then he abolished parties because he said, well, we don't need parties anymore because we as a party are led by the will of the people. And at a certain point, these freedom fighters for the normal people in the in the country became with time dictators. And that means as long as you have at a certain point the possibility to vote out these dictators, it wouldn't be difficult. But obviously, when we look at that, dictators have developed a quite a good arsenal of tools to once they have the power to make it so strong that it's almost impossible to vote out these guys, although you probably still have somehow elections. Yeah, we see it in Russia, we see it in some East countries, we see it in China. And probably most worrisome for me is now when you look at certain developments in, in US, where you first destroy trust in public institutions like the media, like the court, like the administration, three important pillars of a democracy. And 
then now with coronavirus, it's even on steroids because you have suddenly a government can hand out trillions of dollars to people that are loyal to the government or to the leaders and to others not. Just have to think if you're governor of a, of a state in the US and you know if you're critical to Trump, you will get less ventilators and less personal protective things than if you're flattering the, the president. And these are mechanisms that start almost unseen, but they become quite powerful. And I don't know if I, how I would act as a governor of a state because I'm responsible for the life of my, my population. And if I know that is the game, do you have now to bow you vote towards Trump to get the life-saving tr instruments? Or do you say, no, I, I, I'm stay critical and then you risk the lives of your people? These are really difficult decisions to take. And this is, I hope I'm wrong. Yeah? And um, I hope I'm, I'm looking at it too negatively. But these could be some of the instruments that you have seen in other in other trajectories towards dictatorship too. And <laughs> just a side note, yeah? when you think the Democrats did now postpone primaries because of coronavirus, Biden, the probable nominee of the Democratic Party, proposed to delay the convention when the candidate will be defined. Who in the whole country would be able to say it's not good to delay the general election if there's still a next wave of coronavirus and i don't want i don't want to know where we will end up if this election is delayed yeah that's really these are really really times we are now in where developments can accelerate in one direction or the other coming back to companies obviously if you have if you have people that can be voted out everything is fine but if the those people are so powerful that nobody dares to be a counter candidate for example and nobody dares to publicly voice opposition then it could be that these leaders get re-elected and not out of the right reasons yeah? and therefore i hope with the way we're now going um, we will have another solution for the very problem i was mentioning yeah absolutely i mean it's it's well known that it, democracies are very fragile and we always assume that democracy is the strong standing institution but as thomas jefferson famously said you need eternal vigilance to keep democracy alive and people that are interested in this we won't go down too much of the politics but there's also a book a new york times bestseller called the end of the Mer america uh, letters to a young patriot from naomi wolf and she basically describes i believe it's like seven or ten steps how to go from a democracy to a closed society to a dictatorship using examples from history but also the bush administration etc and you could also see this under even more so under uh, obama you know which was a war president and he expanded the power and you could just really see those mechanisms and i think the same applies as you said to companies as well so this brings me to which is a nice nice segue to my next question Now, even though democracy in companies isn't really commonplace, it's not a new idea. I remember reading about a Brazilian company called Semco, and boy, that was at least 15 years ago, where the CEO left it up to the employees to run the companies without a mission statement, an org chart, or any written policies at all. And he didn't even track the number of hours his employees worked either. He also distributed power in a very, let's say, unorthodox way. For example, he let his employees set their own salaries. We He gave them information about the revenue, the profit margins of the company, and some other numbers. And sure, this might be an extreme case, but even Buffer, a tech company from the uh, Silicon Valley, 
has a core value called default to transparency. So they essentially share employee salaries, equity breakdowns, and other financial. And these are numbers are not only available internally, but to the entire world. So I'm currently looking at the list and I can see that the CEO, uh, Joel, here earns about $128,000 per year. And I could see what iOS developer earns uh, and so on. And Semler wrote an article in the Harvard Business Review in 1994, which I'm quoting here, participation gives people control of their work, profit sharing gives them a reason to do it better, information tells them what's working and what isn't. So here's my question. Why not extend the democratic principles to the salaries of employees as well? Because after all, transparency is necessary for a democracy to thrive. What's your view on that? Have you experimented at all with democratically voting for salaries? Um, we, we did a lot of experiments and I'm a, I'm a strong believer in transparency and we in our company we have everything transparent except of very privacy data that is for example if you're sick why you're sick if you leave whatever and they tried to implement three times parent salaries and they always lost the vote on it and there was a coalition i think out of two groups of people one that did earn less than they thought they should earn or that others earned and then they probably were embarrassed and didn't want to share it and then the others that earned more than they thought would be their fair share and obviously they were not interested in sharing it neither and that was always the majority of people but that's my interpretation but i, I lost it yeah and but i have also one exper experience when i narrowly won an experiment on salary and we had a tradition of handing out extraordinary bonus that means when we had a good year we set aside a certain amount of money and said we want to distribute it not as an, an goal achievement basis but who contributed a lot during the last year and we just wanted to say thank you with a significant amount of money i think we started this thing when we were i think 30 40 employees and we said it should be maximum 10 percent yeah that means it was three or four people and we set aside an amount that probably the, the one who got the first first number got i think twenty five thousand francs the second twenty thousand and so on that means it was it was even significant money and we have done it long that in the management team we made the nominations of the people we would want to give it we were discussing it and then we handed out this special bonus and it was a direct to this person activity nobody knew exactly about it and we just did it and it was saying thank you and then at a certain point and we were then probably i think 100 150 people i thought that feels somehow like old style you have some money in your pockets then you go to some people take out some money and put them in their pockets and say hey well well done and i thought that's that's, that's not the way we want to do that let's think of a different more innovative way and i thought okay why not doing that totally open totally transparent and more or less bottom-up democratic and then i proposed it to the team forum and said okay we can do it two ways either we do it the way we have done it the last years that means the leadership team decides and hands out or we do something like the following everyone can nominate whomever he or she wants for this list and everyone can vote up if he or she supports this nomination and then we just make a, a ranking of how many support each person has and out of that, we distribute the money. And I thought that's such a great idea. yeah. And it's totally transparent. It should be a, a fast, 
of appreciation because everyone can nominate whomever he wants and explain why this person deserves it. I thought it should be really a positive experience. And I narrowly won the vote to try this out. It was, I think, 56 to 44. Yeah? Now, years later, I know that should have been a warning signal to not go that way. Yeah, But I said, okay, cool. I've won. We can do it. I can tell you there's, there was no other process in my company, in our company, where we created in a shorter period of time more net, net negative energy. And I was totally taken by surprise. It was really, really, really ugly. And so many people were frustrated and ventilating their frustration about this process. And I didn't get it. I still don't get it fully. Obviously, some people thought it's the wrong people who get it. But it was not a, it didn't, we didn't take away from someone something. We just gave some people something more. But nevertheless, there were so many people totally frustrated and thought it's bad and so on. And I thought, I personally thought the result was quite good. Yeah? There was one who was totally over the top and it was a, a programmer who was not very social, but doing a really good job. He was not even the smartest one or the, the, the most brilliant one, but he did a really good job. He was really engaged. And I think a lot of people thought, wow, this guy is doing a good job, but nobody else sees that. Therefore, I have to vote on that. I, I thought we came up with a really good list, but nevertheless, it was it was really a disaster. And, it, and that burned the idea of do salary experiments for the next years in our company because of this really, really bad experience. Having said that, I'm still convinced that we have to come up with somehow a way of transparency of salaries because especially um, for women, yeah, we have a pay gap and most of the time women don't dare to ask just for ridiculous amount of salary because women more or less there's a lot of studies of confidence gap and so on they only ask for the things they're sure to get they don't they want to avoid a no male colleagues just try to see it like a game they try to ask for for very much and if they get it it's good if they don't get it nothing lost and therefore just with this it's a very simple explanation but that's one explanation that makes it difficult the moment i have transparency and there is a woman i see that some of my female of my male colleagues doing the same job or even a worse job than me earning much more than me will give me some facts that i can go into negotiations and say hey i'm at least worth the money that this guy gets and that would force us to be more consistent with our salary systems. And we know in a lot of companies, they are not consistent. Yeah, because you have to hire someone and they ask for a lot of money and then you just hire and then they earn too much. And so that means I think that would give us that would give us a discipline in having consistency in our salary system. But having said that, I think that very different cultures. Yeah? For example, in the Nordics, salary is very transparent almost in every company and everyone knows what whatever is earning and it's not a big deal. Yeah? In, as we say, continental Europe, it's a big secret and nobody tells. And in US, everybody brags about it, but most of the time I think it's even overinflated, the numbers they tell you. But it's also quite black and white and obviously there are a lot of grays in between. But, um, every company that I co-found, I tried to put it in from the beginning because then it's a little bit more accepted if you say, okay, these are the salaries and then everyone knows it and then you can keep it on. To introduce salary transparency in a company that's already in 
in operations in years, it's probably quite difficult. And I, I don't know if I would go this way. I have seen some models and we also experimented with that. For example, one thing we did that was quite successful. We still kept people that were deciding about the salary system and that were more or less elected leaders back then and people coaches. Yeah. That is a function that we have in the company that are not direct reporting people, but helping in the in the people arena. And they were the group to decide on the salary. And we did a survey we sent out to every employee, the, more or less the full list of colleagues, and asked, okay, please, out of your assessment, grade this person from beginner to guru. Yeah? Beginner, professional, expert, guru, whatever. Yeah? Some, some job grading, if you want to. And then the second question was based on this assessment of the expertise. How do you assess the performance of the person? That means you obviously have a different assessment of a person that is a beginner towards a person that is a guru. Yeah? And then we collected all this information and we, we aggregated the data and then we have seen some people that were quite consistently by all the people put in in a certain packet of, of expertise and also in a certain packet of performance. And then we could compare that to the salary and to the bonus and then decide on that if we have to increase the salary or flatten the line of the salary and how we, how we go with bonus. And then there were some others where we had quite a discrepancy between different assessments. And then we knew, okay, there we have to look deeper into why is this that some colleagues think that's a beginner and some colleagues think that's a guru and some think that there's a very good performance and some others think it's a bad performance. Yeah? And that was quite good, but obviously we were not transparent, but we used at least the wisdom of all the others to get to a fairer system. Yeah. And I've also seen other companies that said, okay, we introduce salary transparency not by making the current salaries transparent, but by making an open forum. Obviously, that works only with smaller companies. I don't know how I would do it with 100,000 employees. But what they did, they made an open forum and they asked the question, Not um, they did not make public what you earn, but they said, okay, now let's reshuffle all our salaries. Yeah, This is the sum that we can spend for salaries, X, Y, Z. Yeah? And on the other side, now we ask you that you put down the number you think you should earn. And because then you have a different discussion, you don't discuss what I'm currently earning, but you're discussing what I think I should earn in the future. And then it was quite interesting to follow this discussion somewhere arguing out of the contribution, somewhere arguing out of what they need. Yeah, I have a family, I have a house, whatever, blah, blah. And there were some examples where this was a successful process, where at the end they came up with a slightly higher salary sum, but they said they can afford it, and then they just implemented it that way. And from that moment, obviously, the salaries were transparent. Yeah. And I, I have another um, experience I just realized. Uh, in 2007, 2008, when we had this financial crisis and we had to cut all the salaries in our own company, I asked the management to cut the salaries. And by that, I made all the salaries transparent just in the management team of all the colleagues in the management team. And the interesting part was we had the two colleagues that were earning a lot. And the moment this was known by the others, the expectations towards those colleagues increased dramatically because they said, okay, if this guy is earning so much more than me, this guy has to be really much, much better. And if not, then I'm, I'm really um, pushy to either increase the performance or to push this guy out. Yeah? That means that can also um, be a consequence of salary transparency that those guys that earn a lot get a lot of pressure to prove their value. What I found very fascinating 
during this whole podcast episode is you've tried a lot of things out where haters or companies or critics, call them what you want, always say, well, that wouldn't work in our company or that wouldn't work in this industry. And they're quick to judge. And if I always ask, okay, did you try it out yourself? Uh, no. I'm like, that's exactly the point. I mean, sure, it's easy to criticize, but trying it out and learning from it is a whole nother ball game. yet they're quick to judge. And that's what I found very fascinating. You actually have the experience to back it up, even if it didn't work. Maybe you didn't do it right. Yeah, maybe so, but at least you had the courage to do it. My last question would be to sum this episode up is what are your top three recommendations for today's CEOs, managers, or even people that are not aspiring to leadership possessions? And maybe you also have some three don't do's for these people as well. Yeah, you're right. I think we are in the moment in this phase where we have to find out new things and we do things knowing that they probably will not work. But nevertheless, we have to try them out to learn something to improve on our ideas. Um, when I now would look at recommendations, first of all, I would say um, have the courage to try out not new things. And most of the time, when you involve all those who are meaningfully affected, um, you will get good advices and sometimes even more courageous solutions that you would dare if you would just impose your ideas. That means involve the people um, with what you would do first. Second, very important, understand that you're more or less doing an experiment. And that's something totally different that we have learned in change management. Yeah, change management normally is you think very um, smartly through certain concepts. You have the best experts, then you have your concept, then you make a communication and then make your rollout and then everyone is on this page. And this doesn't work when you don't know if what you will implement is the right thing to do. Therefore, you have to go a different way. Go with first early adopters. That means find people that are willing to go with you the journey and try new things out because those are willing to experience failures and they are even somehow sometimes motivated by learning and improving on things. That means don't force your whole organization into a new thing. Try it out in a small team that is open to doing that and they gain experience, they improve the ideas, they improve the system and the moment something flies, then others will join in automatically. That means don't do rollouts, do roll-ins. Yeah, that would be my second recommendation. And you could even, for example, in salary, yeah? if you have a team that says, okay, we want to have open salary, then let this team do it. Let this team define and then the rules that this team find out how to do the transition from non-transparent to transparent and then let's see how it works and if it works fine others will follow if it doesn't work fine then you you, you didn't risk your whole organization and didn't um, preoccupy your whole organization with internal things that don't work roll in instead of roll out and um, the third is something that's probably very difficult because most of the time, those pioneers that try out new things are motivated by finding out new solutions by themselves. On the other side, there are a lot of ideas, concepts now already out that work yeah, and where you could start from there. And therefore, read some books that are really helpful in this way. Obviously, the, the company you mentioned, Semco, 
that's a really good book about it. Then there are books about how Gore does it. There are books about how Spotify does it. There's Reinventing Organizations. There are other books where you can get a lot of insights and ideas from where to start. That means you don't have to start from scratch. You get some ingredients that somehow work and then you can put them differently together. Three things I would avoid doing. One, obviously, I already said with the recommendation, don't do certain things just for the full organization or for a lot of people. Yeah? Start with the volunteers, start with a coalition of the willing people and then roll. let it roll in, then um, do it with the whole organization first. Second, don't do too many things at once because it's difficult. Obviously, at a certain point, you get to a tipping point when one follows the other. For example, we did... Um, Employee recruiting, that means the team was recruiting their colleagues. We were electing leaders and then suddenly people started saying, okay, I also want to be able to fire people. Yeah, That is somehow like opening the box of Pandora. And then you have to manage that. Yeah, But if you try to implement in an existing organization um, just from day one of today to, um, to a, a wholly new system, you probably will fail with it. You could use it. Uh, uh, that means don't do that neither. And perhaps one is that could be a recommendation or a don't do. That's probably one of the most difficult to answer. And therefore, at least my recommendation would be to ask yourself this question regularly. Yeah, Especially when you're doing new things you're, and you're failing at the beginning, that's very normal. It's really difficult to to decide if you want to double down or if you want to pivot. Yeah. Double down means, okay, we're on the right track. We have to go to this J-curve. One day we will find out and then it will work. Yeah. Or you pivot and say, okay, this was a crazy idea. It didn't work out. Now let's find another idea. And that's probably one of the most difficult questions to answer. Yeah. When you have to leave certain ideas and when you double down. And that at least the recommendation would be ask yourself regularly on your journey. Do you think you're still on the right track or do you have to pivot? Yeah. Although you put in a lot of, a lot of reputational energy and capital in certain things and also energy of the people. For example, our leadership elections. Yeah. We tried to improve it for several instances. And we failed. And then at a certain point, we have to say, okay, we go in a different direction. Although we are known for leadership elections, everyone asks us about leadership elections. It is a huge attractiveness for in the in the employer in the employer market. It's also huge attractiveness for our customers. And nevertheless, we have to say, okay, we have to pivot away. And that was quite painful. I think we did it in a great way. But nevertheless, it was painful. And therefore, that's a really important question. Double down or pivot. Perfect. I mean, those are some really killer recommendations. And I think even if companies only did 50% of them, I think they would be much better off or much more successful than if they keep on doing the things they have been doing. Yeah. Thank you, Hamon, again, for being on the podcast and taking the time out of your busy schedule to do this interview. Thank you very much for, for these interesting questions. And I'm looking forward for the publication. Now it's that time again to summarize the interview and kind of give you my thoughts. I think there was a lot to unpack in this episode, and I also think it's safe to say that despite all the talk about Agile and other forms of organizations, there are still very few companies that dare to try new things out. But in these uncertain times, we desperately need pioneers all over the world to have the courage to jump off the cliff. Well, maybe not off a cliff, but you know what I mean. 
Sadly, we still have this idolized view of CEOs and managers that they should be all-knowing, free of faults, essentially the perfect leader at any growth stage of a company. But, you know, that's essentially very unrealistic and also very harmful for the managers, the company, and also thus its employees. No one is good at everything. We know that. So why don't we recognize this fact and apply it to companies at well? The stakes not to apply uh, this is, I would argue, much higher in a corporate environment than elsewhere. But in order to apply this thinking, we also need to get over this societal stigma that stepping down is a regression in one's career. And having term limits makes a lot of sense too. Nobody would argue that successful leaders in politics are failures when they step down after their term limit is up. Why don't we apply the same to the corporate world? When we think about how companies are structured today, we can clearly see that they haven't fundamentally changed since the industrialization. The most common type of organization we find in companies today is the functional hierarchy. The same organization Frederick Taylor postulated in his management theory. But with today's challenges, this type of organization will fail, irrespective of modern technologies. You know, companies can automate and digitalize whatever and how much they want. This will not lead to a fundamental change in how companies operate and adapt to changes. The powers at play are culture, beliefs, values, and many others, and these are far more powerful than any buzzword like digital transformation that gets thrown around these days. Also, you can't expect employees to work in cross-functional teams and think laterally if you still have silos or departments in your company and compensate your employees based on these silos. But this requires managers to give up power and control. But Power and control are essentially a myth because even in a functional hierarchy, you always have some interconnectedness and some interdependency. Power also provides managers with a status quo, and that's hard for most managers to give up. Today, more than ever, I would, I would say, we need to solve problems across disciplines. Yet today's organizations are set up in a way that kind of contradicts what the leadership of corporations are claiming. Work in cross-functional teams and be creative, but incentivizes its employees based on their silos. I mean, how has that ever worked? Our world has become way too complex and is moving faster, yet the organizational structures of companies, you know, those pyramids, have not changed. By the time the information about the market, the competitors, and others are channeled up to authority, where it is then analyzed, processed, and pushed back down with the decision, the market has moved on. So what we really need instead is for companies to utilize the subsidiarity principle, so let those who have the information decide. This is something David Marquette, a former nuclear submarine captain, states don't push information up to authority, push authority down to information, something I briefly mentioned throughout the podcast episode. Another aspect I find extremely valuable for managers and especially CEOs is stepping down, even if it's just temporarily, say for a month per year to work under the people they were managing. There's a lot of insights and personal growth to be had in this way. You might also experience for the first time that people only look up or respect your title as a CEO and not the competence you might have, as Hermann mentioned at the beginning of the episode. 
Now, we employees, for instance, more often than CEOs that haven't worked as an employee before, have had this experience before, probably more than once. You know, I remember when I had my first real job after university where I was fortunate to be responsible for a new and strategic product. And as such, I conducted many sales meetings with the CEO and was somewhat baffled by the fact that clients wouldn't really hear what I said. You know, sure, I was young and needed the money. Okay, that sounded really cheap. Anyway, at first I thought it was me, the way that I communicated. I was like, well, maybe I have to repeat it or maybe say it more forcefully and then the client will hear me. And it took some time to realize that I could say whatever I wanted. It didn't really matter as all that mattered was what the CEO said. And this has always really confused me and really disturbed me since childhood. I remember where I had a substitute teacher that was hitting my classmates and nobody had the courage to stand up. And I was more angry at my classmates for not standing up. So I stood up and said, "This is you need to stop this. So I was ordered to sit down and shut up which I did not do, and I refused to do so. So I got thrown out of class, went to the principal, and luckily we had a very fair principal, and he uh, had that substitute teacher removed for the rest of the year. So I was very lucky. And I also remember a time at an exhibition at Amnesty International where we had a booth and a couple of very prominent guests came by and spoke to me. And one of them was very obvious. It was back then in 98, 97 or something like that. It was the justice minister and she came with her bodyguard. So I knew it was apparently somebody very important. And she talked to me five, 10 minutes. And my colleagues said, oh, that was a justice minister. And I'm like, okay, so? I mean, it's nice that she talked to me and she came by and it's probably just a formal visit. And then we had Joachim Gauck uh, come by uh, at that time. And just a few years back, he was actually the uh, Bundes uh, president. So it's more of a ceremonial position. So it's not the Bundes chancellor. But back then he wasn't as famous, but he was still famous that he signed our VIP book. And I was like, okay, who was that? He was very humble and very interesting person to talk to. And that's all I remember. And she's like, oh my God, that was Joachim Gauck. And like he talked to you like 10 minutes and I'm like okay I'm like so it's an important person you know I mean the point I'm trying to make is regardless if somebody's famous whatever position that person has all that should matter is the person in front of you and what he's saying so everything I remember is he's just being very humble and you know having an interesting discussion he was a nice guy period So again, maybe I'm just kind of really weird. Uh, I don't get attached to any position. But then again, I could have a psychological problem. I don't want to rule that out. I just give people what they need to hear, not what they want to hear, regardless of their position, without being disrespectful. Just because you're important doesn't mean it makes you a better person. And so the point I'm trying to make here is we need to start also respecting the competence or more the content of what someone is saying instead of who is saying it. And you can see this very, very clearly. And this is a good example between Obama and Bush. You know, nobody liked Bush, uh, at least not very many, but a lot of people like Obama. Now, this isn't a political podcast, and it doesn't matter with which party you're associated, if it's this party or that party. But I think this makes the point extremely clear. So you had this very eloquent President Obama with lots of charisma. Many like him to this day, which I find personally very disturbing, which I'm going to, to lay out. So he said he was going to sow peace, but he did exact opposite. He created three additional wars, killed more people with drones than any other president in history, put more whistleblowers behind bars than any other president. And he said himself, this is public record, that he is really good at killing people. That was his exact quote. 
And that's why we should look to what someone is doing, not the way he or she is saying it or how powerful or famous that person is, no matter if it's in politics or business. And this is more important in innovation, where you don't want good ideas that are very fragile being influenced by any sentiments such as popularity or group hierarchies. And that's why I tried to make this point very, very clear of why it's so important to keep this in mind. Don't let yourself get sucked in by how famous someone is or how popular someone is. That doesn't make the content that what someone is doing or what somebody is saying any better or any worse. And I think we tend to forget that. Just something I have as a pet peeve, I've always had a problem accepting authority that just because they are authority, just because they have some title makes them automatically better or the content is much better if they say it. And that's just something which, especially for a company that thrives on innovation, you have to really, really, really keep an eye out for is to create an environment where essentially the best idea wins. Now, does that always work? Of course not, but it's just something one should be aware of, especially when it comes to innovation and these very fragile ideas. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's plenty more where that came from. Just head to our podcast website, innovationalcorrectness.com or gammabeyond.com, or just follow us on LinkedIn. There you will also find long-form articles, videos, and other podcast episodes about innovation and transformation. And if I could ask you for one small favor, it would be this. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Overcast, or the podcast app of your choice. It really helps us out by encouraging more people to find our podcast and reach hard-to-get guests. Last but not least, if you have any suggestions, for further episodes or guests that we should invite on our podcast or just have feedback, you have three options. Emailing us at info at gammabeyond.com, filling out our anonymous feedback form at innovationalcorrectness.com, or leaving us a voice message with your question or feedback so that it can be included in the podcast and all listeners can profit. Just go to innovationalcorrectness.com. Links are in the show notes. I've been your host, David Luna. Until next time.